You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. We think of major geological events as stuff that took place a long time ago, maybe back when dinosaurs thundered across a landscape that was just as dramatic as they were, with volcanoes in the background going off all the time, right? Well, looking around here, here in this California suburb, all's pretty calm. I mean, people are going to their jobs, and the shops are open for business, and we're all surrounded by tree-covered mountains that are just lying about, doing nothing. But it's an illusion. The Earth is just as geologically active now as it was in the time of the dinosaurs, or even billions of years before them. It's a planet in motion. It was a devastating earthquake, 7.0 on the Richter scale. It reached all the way into Nevada, as far south as Southern California. I'm Robert Nadeau at the UC Berkeley Seismological Laboratory. Have you ever been in a major earthquake? I was in the Loma Prieta earthquake. 1989? Yeah, 1989. It was my first semester here as a graduate student, so that was an interesting experience. The October 1989 earthquake, named for the Loma Prieta Peak near its epicenter, about 40 miles from where I'm standing, was the biggest quake to hit the San Francisco Bay Area since 1906. To experience that sort of earth tremor is to forever change your relationship to terra firma. I'm originally from Minnesota. We don't have earthquakes, but I knew I came out here. They have earthquakes. I was in a restaurant and the table started sliding around and stuff. And I said, oh, that must be one of those earthquakes they have out here. And I didn't realize how big it was until I could see actually up on our balcony on the fifth floor, we could see some fires breaking out in San Francisco. And then they told us we had to leave the building because it wasn't safe anymore. And I said, this is a pretty serious earthquake. Then we went out the next day and we could see buildings collapse, roads were blocked off could feel aftershocks rumbling on the ground and I think that really made me realize that the earth is sort of alive it's you know it's a dynamic thing and it maybe it seemed like it's asleep for a, a big part of the time but then it'll wake up and be pretty grumpy but then the earth was never really asleep I mean those tectonic plates slowly sliding across earth's hot innards creaking cracking groaning producing earthquakes tsunamis volcanic eruptions even building mountains Yet, we tell someone to come down to Earth or get grounded. But terra firma isn't so firma after all. I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Are We Alone? Recent Indian Ocean earthquakes and a tsunami remind us that things are still not calm in the area where in 2004, a 9.1 magnitude quake, one of the largest ever measured on a seismograph, set off a tsunami that devastated Indonesia. Now, new research about that quake from Rice University in Texas and the University of California at Berkeley suggests that we're all more connected to that event than you might think. 
Robert Nadow is part of a team that has been researching the San Andreas Fault in Parkfield, California, and the team has discovered that the great earthquakes that triggered the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean weakened the San Andreas Fault back in California and also increased global seismic activity, suggesting that all the fault systems are connected worldwide. There's two ways that an earthquake can occur, and you can think of bending a stick. Um, one way is to make a fault rupture as an earthquake is to load it or stress it. So if you have a stick and you're bending that stick, you can make it break by bending it more, increasing the load on it, and making it snap. Another way you can make it break is if you have your friend, when you have it half bent, cut a little notch in the top of it until it breaks. So in that case, you're weakening the stick. And what we found in our research is that the faults can be weakened by large global earthquakes on the other side of, of the planet. So the idea that all these fault systems are connected? Well, the idea is that the weakening and strengthening is connected. Now, they aren't necessarily weakened by the fault moving on the other side of the Earth as so much as the fact that the Earth starts to shake or shimmy. We have what we call free oscillations. So when there's a very large earthquake, like there was in the 2004 Sumatra area, the entire globe starts to oscillate. And in fact, it will continue to oscillate for many weeks, in this case, up to three months afterwards. So the entire Earth is kind of ringing very slowly and oscillating. And all the faults on the Earth are essentially being kind of massaged by this um, oscillation that's going on. And in fact, since that 9.1 Sumatra event, there has been an increase in large earthquakes across the entire globe. So we were studying just the San Andreas Fault, but there's also evidence that the effect of weakening took place across the entire planet. So let's say more about what you actually studied in Parkfield. Parkfield is in California. These earthquakes and the tsunami was out in the Indian Ocean. So you learned something about what happened out there by studying the San Andreas Fault here in California. And you do that at Parkfield by placing sensors deep inside the fault zone. What sort of sensors are those and how deep down are they? And they're right in the San Andreas? They're borehole sensors that are buried down about two football fields into the ground, which is a much quieter environment. We don't have a lot of cultural noise influences and wind and so forth. And so we can look at very small earthquakes, and we've also been monitoring their activity over a long period of time, so we have a baseline of how these things behave. We can see changes or perturbations, such as the ones um, set off by this Sumatra event. Now, you said you were studying something called microquakes? Yes, microquakes are basically ones you generally don't feel. Typically, they'll be below magnitude 3. So we can look at these microquakes and look for changes in them. One of the changes is how often they happen, and another change is they can get smaller or larger. If they get larger, that means that patch they're happening on is getting stronger, and they also tend to occur less frequently when it gets stronger. And we saw the reverse. We saw them get smaller and occur more frequently, so that suggests that they were getting stronger. So just to get the chronology, you have this um, this massive number of earthquakes that happened in 2004 that triggered these tsunamis. It was after that that you saw that the the pattern of these microquakes in Parkfield had changed. Yeah, we saw the pattern change, and we saw that the pattern initially started changing and then became progressively stronger until about three months after this Sumatra earthquake, so that it was strongest after about three months, which makes sense because these large earthquakes may be oscillating the entire Earth for several months after they occur. And then they, they started to return back to their previous strength, so the fault started healing back. It took about a year or a year and a half for the fault to return to its original strength level. 
And um, this long period of weakening is, is consistent with the fact that globally they started seeing larger magnitude eights in the, in the year or two after this Sumatra earthquake. So we think this weakening effect didn't just happen on the San Andreas, but it may have happened worldwide. When we hear weakening, still when I hear weakening, I think, oh, that's a good thing in earthquakes, right? We want them weaker. But that's not what you're talking about. Just to reiterate, when you talk about that the fault is weakened, it doesn't mean that the tension is released in the fault and that there will be fewer earthquakes. That's not what you're saying. What will happen is the earthquakes will come more frequently, but they'll be slightly smaller during the period when it's weakened. But then the fault starts to heal again, and so then they won't happen quite as often, but they're starting to get bigger again. Has what you've learned about um, this connection between these faults, does it change how earthquakes could be forecast? It has the potential to change. We may be able to give you what you call an intermediate term forecast in terms of the likelihood. If there was a large global earthquake and the findings we have hold, then it would suggest that in the short term, in the next year or two after a large earthquake, the probability of an earthquake on any faults in California, for example, would be elevated somewhat. If these fault zones are connected, is there a way of having a global alert system one day that maybe countries would help each other in earthquake forecast? Well, they're already trying to do that with, with tsunamis because tsunami waves can travel great distances. And in terms of earthquakes, collaboration in seismology and earthquake studies is, is pretty international. Everybody realizes that earthquakes are a problem all over the world. One can learn about earthquakes in California, can help people in Indonesia, for example. But I think right now, if there's a large global earthquake, everybody in the world hears about it. And then the people concerned with their faults, local faults, can use what's learned about research generally in terms of fault weakening and fault strengthening and triggering and stimulation to try to gauge what's going to happen to the faults in their area. Thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Robert Nado is a geophysicist at the University of California Seismological Laboratory. Now for a trip south to an island of loveliness in the Pacific's watery expanse. Seth, here we are in Hawaii. This is my first time in Hawaii. Really? Yeah. Well, this is the big island, so this should be a big treat for you. A lot of, a lot of island pleasure here. That's all lava, all that, all that dark rock right there, that's lava? Yep, this whole island's lava. In fact, this whole island chain is lava. It's just 100% lava, all lava, all the time. That's, that's Hawaii. If it weren't for the lava, well, you just have ocean here. We're sitting on the, on the remains of a volcano. Yeah, exactly. This is just a big bump that's been made by uh, hot stuff oozing out of a, well, a hot spot in the Earth's crust. It just happens to be a weak spot in the Earth's crust where uh, the hot stuff that's underneath, the magma, leaks up and, of course, cools down and, and, and makes these big heaps called the Hawaiian Islands. So that's where we are. We're on a big, big heap of stuff that's oozed out. But luckily dry. Well, that's right. Your car would probably melt. Uh, lava, I'm told, is a couple of thousand degrees, you know, hot, hot, red-hot lava, so you got to be careful. Apparently, if you throw a rock into a pile of red-hot lava, then you turn the rock into more lava. It, it melts. Now, I was concerned at first that we might not get any good coffee here because, you know, whenever I go anywhere, I need a good cup of coffee to get me started, but that's not a problem here on the Big Island. <laughs> no, nope. Kona Coffee, and we just uh, left the city of Kona, is uh, world famous, and I think justly so. We, we did get a cup of Kona Coffee here. Ah. Watch out. Yeah, watch those turns. Try not to hit those trees. And, uh, or the people in that car. Um, and it is. It is very, very good coffee. It's very mild. It's 
you know, it's, it's not bitter at all. Well, I don't want to go into an advertisement here for Kona Coffee, but it is world famous, and uh, it certainly tasted good. Yeah, this is good. So I have a cup of coffee here. Mm. Uh, so things move very slowly here on the island of Hawaii, but we're moving south in a southerly direction towards the southernmost point in the United States to the world's youngest and the most active volcano. What's the name of that volcano? Uh, is it Kilauea? That's right. It's on the southeast corner of this big island because when you think about it, you see the Pacific Plate, which is a big slab of oceanic crust underneath the ocean here, underneath all this water. It's a big, it's a big slab. I mean, it's you know like, what, a third or a fourth of the entire area of the Earth. Anyhow, it's moving, and it's moving you know, toward the northwest, and uh, it slides on top of this hot spot, which routinely punches up new islands. And so, of course, this island is moving at about mm, four inches a year, something like that. It's moving toward the northwest. And as it does so, of course, the hot spot, you know, keeps drifting to the southeast, which is where we're going. We're going to the southeast where the newest, youngest stuff is. So the plates are moving northwest at four inches a year, and we're driving south at about, what, 30? Yeah, we're going like about 40? 40 miles an hour, which is a little faster. Yeah, we'll overcome the motions of the uh, oceanic plates with this car, yes. But, you know, when we look at the world over, there are volcanoes, and there are many, of course, in the world, and then there are super volcanoes. Yeah, indeed. I think that they're on the order of uh, a 1,000 active volcanoes, and we know about those, but there are indeed super volcanoes. That's right, and volcanoes like the one that we're on form mountains or form islands, like the island that we're on, but super volcanoes erase mountains. Yeah, that's how uh, the super volcano under Wyoming was first found. It was uh, a geologist about 110 years ago, apparently, who was standing on a mountain there in Wyoming near, well, where Yellowstone Park is now, and he looked around and what he noticed was that there was a big flat spot where there just weren't any mountains there, and he didn't quite understand that. He was in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, except there were no mountains and he was clever enough he was well trained enough to recognize that what he was looking at was what's called a caldera which is just a sort of a sunken infallen you know crest of a of of an old volcano that this was just flattened out because something had erupted there since we have a long drive in in front of us we could learn a bit more about super volcanoes reporter joel achenbach wrote about this for the cover of national geographic recently and indeed on a super volcano located not in the middle of the pacific but in the middle of the continental United States. Joel, the title of your article is not If Yellowstone Explodes, or Perhaps Yellowstone May Explode, or If on the Remote Off Chance and then one day Yellowstone Blows Its Top. It's When Yellowstone Explodes. How do we know this? Well, like a lot of things, we're not absolutely certain about it, but it's exploded so many times in the past, both small eruptions like we had 70,000 years ago, and more dramatically, these super eruptions of what has been called a super volcano, the whole caldera blows in, a, in an eruption that would just stagger uh, your mind if you could see it, much bigger than Mount St. Helens by a factor of a thousand. So it's happened many times before. There's no reason to think it won't happen again. What well, a lot of people have been to Yellowstone, and they think they know what a volcano looks like and how big they are. I mean, Vesuvius near Naples, Mount Fuji near Tokyo. But this thing in Yellowstone, there's no big volcanic cone there. How did they ever determine that it was a volcano? For me, in doing this story, one of the fun parts of it was trying to see the volcano, because you drive around the park, and you hike around, you go up on hills, and 
and you try to see, well, where exactly is this thing they're talking about, this caldera? It's on the map. They have a little dashed line. But to see it physically, it, there's only a few places where you get a really good angle on it. Essentially, in the core of that park, there are no mountains. It's the absence of mountains that tells you, well, this is kind of like a big basin. It's like a big bowl. What a caldera is, is sort of a collapsed volcano. Uh, in the eruption, so much magma gets ejected from the magma chamber beneath the surface that the ground collapses down into the, into the earth. So what you have at Yellowstone is about a 30 by 50 mile hole in the ground. And of course, it's filled in somewhat, but there are no mountains there. And from certain vantage points, you realize it's the basin of a huge collapsed volcano. You've already intimated this is not your ordinary size volcano either. It's a super volcano. How, how much bigger do you have to be to get that super certification? There is actually a cutoff at which point I think the USGS says this is a super volcano. It's something like 640 cubic square miles of ejecta has to be involved. There's not actually, in real life, a borderline between a small volcano and a supervolcano. The word supervolcano is kind of a, a hyped word to begin with. If you have a collapsing of the surface into this cauldron, that's a caldera. And for that to happen, you have to have a, just a tremendous scale of material coming out of the ground. This sounds like the perfect spot to build a family park. Uh, did they know that when Yellowstone was created? <laughs> No, well, I mean, I think the reason they thought Yellowstone was so neat was because of the hydrothermal features. I mean, this, you know, there's all these bubbling mud pots and geysers and these little streams of strangely colored hot water. The place was a real devil's lair of exotic features. At the core of it, of course, is this volcanic feature. And for a long time, scientists didn't really know what they were looking at. It was not clear how uh, all the hydrothermal features were connected. And the article that we've done at the Geographic looks at the latest research on figuring out what's underneath the ground, what kind of plume there is coming up from the mantle that creates this hot spot. But for a long time, scientists didn't really grasp what it was. Hold on, and we'll be back with Seth's interview with Joel Achenbach in a moment. You're experiencing extreme geology on Are We Alone? This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash X-N-A-S. We're back with Supervolcanoes and reporter Joel Achenbach. 
Okay, so this is a hot spot under this uh, caldera. It's just sort of like the Hawaiian island chain. There's a hot spot under that. And that one's easy to figure out because there's a whole series of islands, of course, that stretches to the northwest there in the Pacific of the big island. And that gives you sort of the history as the oceanic plate slides over the hot spot and you know, gets routinely punched from below, kind of like a piece of cloth going under the needle of a sewing machine, but upside down. Is there a series of volcanic residues trailing off from Yellowstone, sort of a trail of past activity? Sure. You can see uh, the sites of the past eruptions going across Idaho into, I guess, Oregon and almost to the border of California. I mean, this thing is a long feature across the earth, and gradually Yellowstone is migrating towards Montana. And it's been migrating across the hot spot. Essentially, the basin and range area is passing over this hot spot. Now you have the crest of the Rockies is above the hot spot. And there is, you know, one thought that eventually Yellowstone will peter out because it's under thicker crust and maybe denser crust. But I'm not sure how you prove it because any day the thing could blow again and then you found out that you were wrong. Well, speaking of blowing, the the last time this supervolcano exploded was, what, 640,000 years ago. Can you give me an idea of the you know, the, the, the scene, the geological processes that occurred when it happened, the mess it created? One of the analogies one of the scientists used was shaking a, a Coke bottle, and then all this pressure builds up under the ground. And when it blows, it blows catastrophically. Figure a thousand Mount St. Helens combined. The ejecta goes 100,000 feet up into the atmosphere, and you'd have ash reaching almost the Gulf of Mexico. Anything within hundreds of miles is going to be affected by this. And anywhere near Yellowstone, that part of Wyoming, that part of the, the uh, Rocky Mountains, you'd have complete devastation of every tree, every animal, these super hot pyroclastic flows of superheated gas coming out of the, the volcano and racing across the landscape and just incinerating everything. You wouldn't want to be around for this. Uh, but the effect, I mean, you've already alluded to this. When Vesuvius blows its top, it takes out some towns. Pompeii comes to mind. But if Yellowstone blew its stack, I mean, you've mentioned that if you live in Wyoming or maybe some of the uh, the states that are sort of downwind from this, that would be bad news. But to what extent would the rest of the planet feel the effects of a supervolcano going off? It would trigger global cooling effects with all the material in the upper atmosphere that would then reflect sunlight back into space. And, you know, with Mount Tambora in 1815, you had the year without a summer. And Tambora, again, was maybe about 1% the size of a, of a Yellowstone super eruption. So it would probably have an effect, and I, I don't want to step outside my expertise, which is very limited on this, but uh, it would have an effect for years uh, on the global climate. You know, it wouldn't end life on Earth, and it probably wouldn't end the United States as, a, as an economy, but if it did happen, it would be devastating on a scale unlike anything that we've seen probably in the history of this country. That said, we have to reiterate, this doesn't happen very often, and I wouldn't hesitate to make plans to go to Yellowstone next summer. I don't think in our lifetime, Seth, that this is the thing that's going to get us. Just because of the nature of geological processes, they don't really care about, you know, what we have on our day planner. They operate on their own time scale. All right. Well, I don't want to alarm the residents of Wyoming or tourists either, for that matter. But I mean, would we get any kind of notice? Are there, you know, sort of stomach rumblings that would be 
unmistakably the sign that it was going to explode? Would, would it be like the 20 years we might get in case of an incoming asteroid? I think the, the short answer is yes. The, the previous piece I did for the geographic was on earthquakes. Now, with earthquakes, you don't get a warning. It looks like earthquakes have all these random chaotic elements, and contrary to what some people believe, you know, they don't telegraph themselves. The earth just breaks suddenly out of the blue. In the case of volcanoes, there would be, and there are, precursors. We don't know exactly what it would be like before it erupted, but you would expect to see a number of things. First of all, earthquake swarms. You expect to see a lot of upwelling of the ground in advance. And there has been some of that. Yellowstone goes up and down by several inches uh, over the course of just a few years. It kind of is the rising and falling. It's like it's breathing. The whole thing is, is very much active. But the people I've talked to have made clear that there's no reason to think this thing is going to blow imminently. It's alive, but it doesn't seem to be behaving in a way that would suggest that any time in the next 10, 20 years this thing is going to go. Uh, moreover, I think statistically it would be more likely to have a small eruption than a super eruption. So the last one of those was 70,000 years ago. It was a much more limited event. So that would be more likely to happen than to have the whole thing go kablooey. All right. Joel Achenbach, thank you so much for talking to me about this explosive topic. Thanks, Seth. Joel Achenbach is a reporter, and his story, When Yellowstone Explodes, is the August 2009 cover of National Geographic. Well, Seth, Joel paints a pretty dramatic picture of a supervolcano. Yeah, but to see the real picture, you might have to wait hundreds of thousands of years, Molly, and really I don't have the patience. But fortunately, we're on our way to an active volcano right now, Kilauea, here on the big island of Hawaii. Hey, we're entering the park, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Yep, just saw a sign said Aloha Volcano National Park. Oh, Seth, look at that. With a steam vent? What is that? Yeah, look all around. It's just smoking everywhere. Steam we- vents. Let's pull over. We're walking towards one of these steam vents. Yep, yep. As you look around, 360 degrees, just pockets of smoke coming up from the land. Yeah, it's as if there were, you know, grass fires everywhere, but of course, it's not fire, it's steam. Now, this is just water vapor. This is not sulfurous vapor. No, no, no smell, just just steam, I think. And it's just, uh, you know, water, groundwater that's gotten down deep enough that it hits the hot rock underneath us and Percolates. Yep, gets turned into steam. Is the earth still hot on the inside because it's still cooling off from when the earth was created? Yeah, well, in fact, there are two major components of the heat of the interior of the earth. One is there's some radioactive stuff, of course, radioactive materials that continue to heat the interior of the earth. But a lot of that heat is just heat left over from the formation of the earth. Had all these rocks slamming into one another to make the earth... And, of course, when they would slam into one another, there would be a lot of heat released because all the energy of their motion would be turned into heat. And a lot of that heat is still here four and a half billion years later because the Earth, after all, is, uh, you know, the surface of the Earth, the crust, is a pretty good insulator. So it's like a big thermos bottle. The heat stayed inside. (laughs) My glasses just fogged up. It's sort of like an outdoor sauna, actually. And in the distance, we can see big clouds of, of smoke from the active part of this volcano. It's really an impressive sight, actually. And now what we're going to go see is a vent of Kilauea that it's just opened up a couple years ago. So we won't see any magma, Seth, at the spot that we're going to now, but we will see lots of activity. Yeah, Molly, Kilauea's been active for something like two dozen years. 
It looks like you can find out something about the park. You tune in to 5.30 a.m. This is a visitor advisory for sulfur dioxide emissions at the summit of Kilauea Volcano. What that means is we're getting close to the volcano. Yep, a lot of sulfur dioxide emitted by volcanoes. In fact, you know, reminds me of Io. Not that I've ever been there, but that's the innermost moon of Jupiter, and it's all yellow because it's covered with all the, the sulfur deposits there from all the volcanic activity. So I guess this is a little bit of Io right here on Earth. Sulfur dioxide emissions have been two to four times normal levels for the last couple of months. Well, we're pulling up to the uh, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory here in the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. So uh, we're right at the rim of the action here. Let's go take a look at this thing. I'm Jim Kwahikala. I'm the scientist in charge of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. Uh, Jim, we're standing in front of uh, Kilauea here, and it's uh, belching uh, steam. I guess that's steam coming out. It's been doing this for a long time, 25 years? Uh, it is a long time. Uh, actually, this volcano has been erupting continuously for over 26 years. But uh, that's out at a place that's maybe about 12 miles from here. This particular event at the summit has only been erupting for a little over a year and a half. I wonder if you can describe what it is that we're looking out at, sure. which is just huge craters, what it looks like. Yeah, and then all the, the steam coming out. We're at the summit of uh, Kilauea Volcano, and it's different from uh, mainland volcanoes. And the mainland volcanoes are, the, you know, the pointy kind. Uh, these are very shallow sloped, and actually the summits are, they look kind of caved in. So we're looking at the uh, caldera of Kilauea, which is about three miles in diameter. And inside of that... There's a small pit crater called Halemaumau Crater, which is about a kilometer in diameter. And then inside of that, there's another opening, which is belching out a great deal of sulfur dioxide and small amounts of ash. Just be very happy that it's not blowing towards us right now. And if the, if the wind were to shift and, and all that sulfur dioxide would blow this way, We'd what would that mean? choking and coughing. <laughs> it has a fairly high concentrations of sulfur dioxide in it, among other things, so we don't want it there. Now, the question that's on everyone's mind, I think, when you hear a volcano is, where's the lava in this case? Well, in this right. particular, uh, again, this is two, vent, two vents on the same volcano. We got this one up at the summit and one along the east rift zone. Uh, the lava here uh, is present about 200 meters below the inner crater floor. And sometimes you can see it. In fact, if you come here at night, there will be an incandescent glow in the fume here. It's quite, quite nice. But to be able to see the actual lava, you have to fly over the rim because it's so vertically, it's a vertical challenge to see it from the rim. So you have to see it from the air right over it. There is lava coming out of the vent in the east rift zone, and it uh, is entering the ocean. Actually, it has been doing that for quite a while. And what we're standing on right now, this dark rock, this is all lava? Cooled off lava? Uh, this is lava that was explosively erupted. So this is the remnants of a, probably a big eruption that happened around uh, 1790, a series of eruptions that ended about 1790. And that's why it uh, looks like a bunch of gravel here, as opposed to a very smooth lava surface, which you can see down there on the crater floor. Well, when you see a volcano like this, this is what's called a shield volcano that's here. Right. So in other words, it's sort of just, there's a hot spot deep underneath us, and it just kind of oozes this hot stuff up to the surface. So it doesn't sound very dangerous, but when you say that what we're standing on here was part of a violent eruption not very long ago. I mean, is there any danger here? Could this park go away? Well, the park would always be here. It might be quite different. There is a potential for explosive eruptions here. Um, like I said, 1790 was the last one, but that was only the end of about two or three centuries of explosive activity. And it certainly could happen again here. And that's uh, in part why Kilauea is regarded as the most threatening volcano in the U.S. currently. So we see what's happening here on the, the surface of the planet. What's happening beneath? What is causing this volcano to erupt geologically? 
Well, we know from the end of the pattern of earthquakes and other things that uh, magma is being stored underneath this summit area, and it probably comes up from the mantle, from the hot spot, resides here maybe three to five kilometers below the surface, and then it moves out more or less horizontally to the east rift zone eruption site. So we're basically a, a way station. Magma passes by us on the way to the eruption site. Now we kind of get to see it for a little bit on its way, although this is a finger that sticks up out of the uh, <clears throat> out of that magma reservoir. It's not directly connected. It's not like we're watching magma as it moves that way. We're watching magma as it comes up and degasses and goes back down, and then it moves out. What's a hot spot? <laughs> a hot spot is a mythical creature. It's a <laughs> it's a hypothetical uh, thing that exists in the Earth's mantle. Probably an area of excessive heat. There are maybe 20 or 30 of them identified around the world. And uh, this seems to be a persistent feature. In fact, the Hawaiian Islands were uh, one of the strong arguments for the existence of hotspots because there was a long island chain that uh, sort of trailed off over the Pacific Plate. And uh, the age relations along the chain always pointed to the younger end to the southwest, which is where we are now, southeast, sorry. And so there's, there's a new volcano coming up uh, from the ocean floor just offshore here to the southeast, and the action goes on. The only way that could happen is if there is a persistent supply of magma in a relatively fixed position, knowing that the Pacific Plate is moving over it will produce a, this trail of islands as it goes along. I wasn't prepared for you to say that a hotspot was hypothetical. Well, it exists below the crust, and nobody's been there as far as I know. But the uh, sort of circumstantial evidence is that there is something there that produces this magma. We don't have eruptions kind of at random around the Pacific Basin. They all exist uh, pretty much in these island groups that can be markers for how the Pacific Plate moves. It's very consistent with the way the Pacific Plate moves. Hang on, and we'll return to Jim Kawahikawa and Hawaiian volcanoes in a moment. It's Extreme Geology on Are We Alone? Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now we return to our conversation about Kilauea Volcano, Hawaii's most active. By looking at the Hawaiian island chain and knowing how fast the Pacific plate, that is the, the, the bottom of the ocean, if you will, is sliding over this hot spot, making one island after another, sort of you know, like, a, like a sewing machine, and he's making one stitch after another, you get some idea of how long the Hawaiian islands have been in business, how long this hot spot's been, been doing this, and, and, and about how long is that? The whole record is about 80 or 90 million years. Unfortunately, the uh, the oldest end of it is cut off by a subduction zone. Okay, so we're missing the oldest islands. They're, we're missing they're, the oldest ones, they're, yeah. They're gone. They, they've sunk out of view. So 100 million years, but in the history of the Earth, that's not very long. Like the, you know, That's only 2% of the history of the Earth. So this, this hotspot might be a kind of a temporary thing if you look at the long-term history of our planet. 
Uh, it could be. Yeah, it could be very temporary. And since each of these islands eventually gets worn away and then, I guess, eventually subducted, what, what you're saying is that Hawaii is going to go away in the long term. In the very long term, yeah. Hawaii, well, there'll be a new Hawaii, if you will. There will always be islands here uh, in studies of, you know, for ecology purposes, migration of uh, birds or whatever. People have tried to uh, reconstruct uh, whether islands were always above the surface, you know, given that sea level goes up and down, that islands, uh, as you say, the islands sink into the crust, they erode. And it turns out that there have been long periods in the history of the Hawaiian Islands where there have been no islands above the surface. So all the animals here are relatively recent. They're not millions of years old. They're only a few tens of thousands of years old. Now, the, the newest family to the Hawaiian chain is Loihi. This is this island that's being created now as we speak, just off in the Pacific Ocean south of here. Mm-hmm. How fast is Loihi growing and when will it actually break the surface of the water? That's anybody's guess. We know that it's growing. We know that it's active because of the seismicity that we pick up with our on-island monitoring arrays. Um, But if anything, it appears to be shrinking. (laughs) Uh, In 1996, there was a very large seismic swarm that precipitated, or it ended up in a uh, collapse of the summit. And so it probably lost a little bit of height at that point. But overall, Loihi must be growing. Um, I've heard estimates of uh, 50,000 to 150,000 to 200,000. So it's anybody's guess. It's not growing quickly, though. So it sounds like it's still premature to sell real estate on Loihi. It's not premature for some people to think about it, but I think it's premature, yes. Well, Jim, the U.S. Geological Survey has a volcano hazards program, and the monitoring of Kilauea and Mauna Loa are part of that. What, what sort of technologies do you use to monitor the hazards other than walking outdoors from your office and seeing if it smells bad? Well, we use uh, historically the, the most used technique would be uh, monitoring earthquakes and continue the continuous vibrations, the tremor. Uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, we've started to really quantify the, the motions of a volcano, how it changes its shape. And so we uh, were using, used to be using laser shots across the caldera for a while. Then we replaced that with GPS instruments, which now we can get, you know, X, Y, Z of all kinds of motions. So you're saying that the land actually deforms, it moves. Yeah, this particular location has uh, gone up and down on the order of two plus meters during volcanic cycles. But with all this instrumentation and everything that you're observing, to what degree can you send out hazards or warn people, for example, on, on the island that is going to be is going to be a bad sulfur dioxide day or that the volcano is actually going to erupt? I mean, can you actually, do you have a warning program in place as well? Oh, we do have a warning program. It's not as exact as we'd like it to be, but we can certainly see changes in an area. So, you know, we know what kind of background seismicity is like up here. If we should see that, you know, tens or hundreds of earthquakes per hour start to occur up here, we'll know that something's up, and that's the point at which a warning will go out. Sounds like you have a pretty good eye on this volcano. You have this instrumentation, and um, we have you have a good idea of what's happening. And it leads to the question of what don't we know about volcanoes? What are the big mysteries about volcanoes? Well, why these vents uh, ultimately open up, you know, what starts the eruptions, basically. We know that gas is a major mechanism. We know that uh, heat release is a major purpose of volcanoes. Uh, but why, why do eruptions start? That's kind of the fundamental one. Jim, you don't have any hesitancy about coming into work in the morning, seeing this big hole in the ground in front of your office with steam coming out of it? Yeah, and and given what you said about you never know what's going to happen next. That's the exciting part about it. I look forward to it every day. Jim Kawahikawa is a geologist at the U.S. Geological Survey Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. And now that we're off the island, 
We've been hearing how the Earth is reshaped on timescales we can see. Volcanoes erupt, fault lines give way. But Earth's geological activity can be slow, too, altering the planet literally drip by drip. The consequences are no less dramatic than a sudden earthquake or volcano. And to explore one of the world's mammoth, sinuous caves is to come face to face with the awesome scale of geology's work and its beauty. Pat Cambesis is a geologist and cave explorer. She doesn't explore caves the way tourists do, hiking through them on hardened paths illuminated by electric lights on the walls, although even the thought of that sanitized experience makes me claustrophobic. No, she wants to go where no one has gone before, new caves. Pat Cambesis has explored and mapped some of the world's largest and most impressive caverns, and taking on extreme geology can often require extreme fortitude and endurance. She's had her share of heart-pounding adventure and scary moments. But for her, the real draw is experiencing the thrill of scientific discovery, such as being a part of a team that uncovered the now-famous Chandelier Ballroom in New Mexico's Lechuguilla Cave, one of the world's longest and most surprising. When you think of Lechuguilla Cave, or when people think of that cave, they think of that particular room. And what it is is it's a large chamber, and it has these, these very long, curvy gypsum crystals, and they're like 20 feet long. So they're, they're pretty outrageous, and they're very spectacular. And so I was very lucky to be on the team that discovered that room with those formations in them. Uh, tell me about how you discovered the Chandelier Ballroom. Well, by being a, a good cave explorer... And what that means is, is that in cave exploration, um, it counts as exploration when you are documenting what you find, which means in terms of caving, you are mapping as you go. And so I was part of a, a big cave project where we had discovered Lechuguilla Cave, and we had, there were, I don't know, five or six expeditions a year. There could be as many as, you know, 50 or 60 people at these expeditions, and people were coming in and out of the cave constantly for a week. So I just happened to be resting up after a previous trip that I had done the day before, and a team came out, and they were very excited about what they found, and they said, you need to go here, and they showed me their notes, and the area sounded really interesting, you know, it had a lot of gypsum in it, you know, a lot of, like, the gypsum is like a white crystalline mineral, and lots of, it's very decorated, and it had water, which in this particular cave is very unusual, because, you know, Lechuguilla Cave is in the desert. So it sounded really intriguing, and I convinced three other people that they wanted to go with me the next day, which was not hard to do. And we went to the area that we went, and it was as they described. There were other passages going off in different directions, and we just said, well, let's you know go down this passage. And so we picked one and started our survey line down it, and in about 15 minutes, my lead tape person, I could hear their voice echoing in the distance. You know, like, we found a big room, we found a big room. And so, of course, you know, we were all very excited about that. And at the time, the light sources that we were using were carbide lights, which are little flame lights, like miners' lamps. And so we really couldn't see very well what was in the room. All we could see was is that the room continued. Now, I want you to explain that moment of discovery, but just just a couple other details. So you're, you're there, you're in this cave. Now, for someone who's never done any caving like me and who is a little claustrophobic, I, I really am trying to picture this and how you're doing this. And there's no light. There's not as though there's a tunnel, you know, 20 feet from you where you can step out into the outdoors if you get panicky or anything. You're underground, and, and you're committed to being underground. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean... To get to the location that we were, okay, required that we 
do a bunch of technical rope work. Like we had to go down a 90-foot entrance shaft, and then we traversed a little bit of cave, and then we had to descend yet another 150 feet down another big shaft called Boulder Falls. And we traversed, I don't remember how much cave passage, and we had to descend maybe another 100 feet total. So in other words, we, we kept descending, and so we were going deeper and deeper into the cave, and then until we reached the deep, you know, the point that we were at. But the thing to keep in mind in this cave is it's not a tunnel that we were following, because the kind of cave that we were exploring doesn't make a single tunnel. It has many different tunnels, like exploring Swiss cheese. So there are passages going off in many different directions. So basically what we're doing is not only are we going deep into a cave, but we're going deep into a three-dimensional maze. So that makes it a little more complicated. It's incredible. Okay, so you're coming upon the room that will be the chandelier ballroom, and the, the one of your colleagues has discovered a room. What happened next? Well, of course, all they could see was, because we were all had our little cap lights, that we could see that the room continued, and it looked like there was passage on the other side of the room. So my survey team, they, they wanted to explore. They were like, we just want to go check this out, see if it goes. You, you work on sketching the room, and we'll be back eventually. So while they were off exploring, I was making my sketch, and I see this big, like, white, shadowy thing in the distance. So I go up closer to it, and I see the chandelier, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> This is really cool, a chandelier, because, you know, something like that, one of them is pretty spectacular. You should describe and, what a, a chandelier is. It's a, this mineral or this crystal deposit, right? It's, um, these particular chandeliers, these are, are gypsum, and it's calcium sulfate is what gypsum is. And these crystals were anywhere from 6 feet to 20 feet long, and in diameter, mm, maybe like 8 inches, even more in diameter, and they hang off of the ceiling. They're just hanging from the ceiling, and they look like these big claws that are hanging off the ceiling because they kind of, they don't hang straight down. They go off in kind of erratic directions. And then at the very bottom, you can see the, the actual gypsum crystal, and then they have little droplets of water on them. And they're, they're pretty spectacular. <laughs> well, when I, when, when I saw that there was not just one of these things, but like many, many of them, when my survey team came back, we spent the next three hours doing a very detailed survey of the room. And then when we were done, then we continued exploring. And that trip was, I think it was like a 32-hour trip, which is how long we were underground. So you were sleeping underground? Oh, no. <laughs> what? No. Well, you can't sleep when you make that kind of discovery. Now, these crystals have been since described as some of the most exquisite formations that have ever been seen underground, and they really got scientists curious about how the cave had formed. Correct. And with Lechaguilla, the idea was that this cave formed from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Exactly. Because when we look for oil and gas, and, you know, we're always looking for oil and gas because, you know, we depend on it. And so there's this great hydrocarbon basin in Texas and in New Mexico. You know, it's deep enough where the geologic processes are under extreme temperatures and pressures that you start cooking the organics in the rock and it makes oil and it makes gas. And there's other fluids associated with this. And sulfuric acid and sulfate are like one of the minerals and one of the other 
geologic rock units that are associated with hydrocarbon basins. But anyway, what happens is is that your sulfuric acid goes into solution in the water, and it makes the water even more aggressive toward the limestone than just carbonic acid. And these fluids are basinal fluids that are like rising because of the changes in pressure, underground pressure. And so as they rise, they mix and they start solutioning out cave passages and chambers in, in the limestone. Now, now caving is about exploration, as you've as you've described, but it's also about taking risks. Now, have you ever had to get on your stomach and squeeze between two a very narrow passageway? <laughs> is that your nightmare? You've pinned it. When I just think about that, I get a little panicky. Yes, and not in every cave, but there certainly are caves where there are places that are very low and very tight, and that in order to you know, to continue your exploration or to get into another section of cave that you may have to get down on your belly and just inch along in very low, tight passages. So I think that just depends on what your psychological limits are. <laughs> well, I think we know what mine are. <laughs> now, you have been in it some tight situations, not necessarily literally tight, as we were just describing. And I wonder if you could just tell me the story of what happened on your caving expedition in Missouri. Well, for um, yeah, when I was caving in Missouri, um, I was working with a number, with three or four other people, and we were exploring a little karst area that was relatively new that we hadn't you know, really known about before. And we went and explored and mapped that and discovered a, a little shaft in it, and we were not prepared to do the shaft. So we came out, and we were going to plan to go back the next weekend. But usually when you find something new, especially if there's anything vertical involved, everybody wants to go with you. So what we wanted to do was to keep this discovery to ourselves, at least, you know, initially. So what we did when we returned the next weekend is we pretty much kept our whereabouts a secret, and we hid our vehicles, we hid the cave entrance. Who did you keep this a secret from? Who weren't you telling? The other cavers that were working in the area. So you're a little competitive, you cavers. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we um, we went down, we continued our survey, we decided that we were going to use a cable ladder to descend this little shaft instead of our standard climbing gear. We got down to the bottom, we explored three or 400 feet of passage, some of it which required swimming. So we turned around to come out tried to go up in the cable ladder and discovered that we couldn't climb the cable ladder because the way that we rigged it, when you put your weight on it, it put the cable ladder rung flat on the wall, and you couldn't get your fingers around it, and you couldn't get your feet in the rung. And so we could not climb the cable ladder. So we were at the bottom of this 30-foot shaft. We're completely soaking wet, starting to get hypothermia. I mean, it was, it was very serious, and we were very concerned. And just about the time when we thought, boy, have we ever blown it, we could hear some noise at the top of the shaft. We started yelling, and sure enough, one of our rivals had followed us into the cave and finally discovered the little pit, and he knew we were down there, and he was just waiting for us to come up. And luckily, thank God that he did. And the reason he, he knew to follow us is because we wrote, you know, there's a restaurant that everybody goes to, and they write, this is where we're going today in a little logbook. So we wrote where we were going in the logbook. He comes in to eat his breakfast, reads the logbook, and sees where we're going to go, and then notices that we drive in the opposite direction. So that's how he knew that he had to come after us. Well, Pat, it raises a question of what kind of person becomes a cave explorer. Well, you know, I really think as a personality type. It's somebody who is intrigued by the unknown, 
and want to, to know what's around that corner. What does this cave passage do? You know, it's kind of like the explorers that they explored the Americas before they were well-known, you know, to Westerners. I mean, these are the people that, well, if I keep going on this trail here, how far can I go? You know, where is it going to take me? It's a curiosity thing. Well, Pat, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, well, you're welcome. Pat Cambesis is a geologist and the assistant director of the Hoffman Environmental Research Institute at Western Kentucky University. So we live on an active planet. Continents are moving, water and chemicals hollow out limestone, lava bubbles up and reshapes the land. But what happens when it all ends, when plate tectonics, for instance, stops? Because it will end. One day, the radioactivity that keeps our planet's interior toasty warm will fade, and the center of the Earth will cool. Good news, you say? No more earthquakes, at least. Well, that's true. But the mountains will wear away, and no new ones will replace them. Forget that ski vacation. Even worse, the carbon dioxide in the oceans won't come back via volcanic eruptions, and Earth will cool off like Mars, where minus 50-degree temperatures are just another summer day. Plate tectonics may be inconvenient, but you can't live without it. The Earth is dynamic, always in motion, and yet, yet, it is stable enough that we can build bridges, ride unicycles, climb ladders, and even find that Hawaii is still there if we feel like a tropical vacation. Heck, we can even thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute for their help with this program. But don't be fooled. The Earth is not quiescent or inert. It is restless and always churning, and we have to brace ourselves for those moments when the geologic process of the long term interrupts the present. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.